Heavenly Father, what a great privilege it is to come before you and to call you our Father. Uh, Lord, what a great privilege it is to open your word. And I do pray that as we open your word, that you will open our hearts, that you will open our mind, and that, Lord, the very truth that you have in store for us, that you will instill it in us that it may not just merely be a theoretical uh, truth that we understand um, with our minds, but a truth that we embrace with our hearts and experience in our lives. And so we ask for a double portion of your spirit this evening, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are in our series, The Unhindered Gospel. And uh, we've already come to our third presentation here in our um, evening meetings here. We started on Sunday um, with um, our first presentation, yesterday our second, and here we are um, already come to our third presentation. And I titled this message for this evening, A Perfect Mirror, A Perfect Mirror. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up basically where we left off yesterday, and we're going to continue to examine the role of God's law the Ten Commandments, in the life of a Christian. And uh, I have actually preached this message in a variety of countries. Uh, a couple of months ago, I preached it in Germany. Um, I presented it in Norway. Um, I presented it in, in actually uh, quite a number of different countries in Europe. And uh, the feedback that I've gotten, you know, some messages you get more feedback than others. And uh, this was one of the ones where I've had people come up to me, and this is not to my glory, it's to the glory of God, but that have said, now that was very, very helpful. I've always wondered about the role of the Ten Commandments in the life of a Christian. And just, this just really clarified it for me. And uh, so that is my prayer, that that will um, have the same effect this evening. Uh, what, are, what is the role of the Ten Commandments in the life of a Christian? And we're going to examine that together as we study God's Word. Now, this is going to be real a Bible study, so I hope you have your Bibles with you. Can, I, can you show me your Bible this evening? Amen. Very good. You're going to need it. So if you don't have a Bible, make sure you sit next to someone that does so that you can follow along. And we are going to begin um, our journey together in the book of Romans, where we have, that's the book that we've been studying together, and turn to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, and uh, we're going to read verse 19 and 20. We already looked at these verses in our presentation yesterday. Uh, we're going to read them again, and then we're going to uh, continue to develop this theme of the Ten Commandments in the life of the Christian. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And here already we have a picture of what the Ten Commandments do, what the law is given for. And I'm reading here from the New King James, and you can read along in the version that you have. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And this expression is coming back a number of times in Scripture, and we're going to look at what that exactly means to be under the law. Now, um, I'm going to start again. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And his, that's capital H, that's talking about God. For by the law is, what does your Bible say? Can you speak up a bit? What does it say? The knowledge of sin, exactly. By the law is the knowledge of sin. So according to these two verses here in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, what is the role of the law? The law, 
through the law comes a knowledge of sin. I mean, if we would not have the law, just think about it, if we removed the law, we would not know what sin is. You know, when you think about it, the gospel is the gospel, the gospel is good news. That's basically what the word means. The gospel is good news about a savior, right? That saves us from sin. But how do we know what sin is? We know what sin is because we have a law that defines what sin is. Now, and this is very, um, what has happened in Christianity today, whenever the law is removed, it gets really, really difficult to even define what the gospel is because it's like a domino effect. So we have, again, we have the gospel, which means the good news, of a savior that saves us from sin, and sin is defined by the law, okay? If you remove the law, what happens? You have a gospel, good news, about a savior that saves, but you don't know what he's going to save you from. And uh, if, you're not, if you don't know what he's going to save you from, well, what's actually the good news, right? So it's very important, the first role of the law, and we find it right here in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, is to define for us what sin is. Okay, are you with me so far? Are you with me so far? Yes. Okay, very good. Now, we're going to look a little closer here. Uh, yesterday, I used this illustration about the law is like a mirror. Remember that illustration? That when you look into the mirror, um, it's like, you know, looking into the law, it's like looking into a mirror, and the law is not to show you how righteous you are, but actually how unrighteous you are. Uh, it's like looking in the mirror, and you recognize that you're dirty, that there's something wrong. And uh, the law is there to show that. It's a perfect mirror. It's one of those mirrors that reveals everything. If you ever, you know, yeah, you guys travel here at Fountain View and you know you stay at different places and different homes that you come into or different hotels or places, you have different mirrors and some mirrors they seem to reveal more than others. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? And um, for some reason, sometimes the light is just, you know, really in such a way and the mirror is in such a way that you see everything. And for some reason, ladies still like to look into those mirrors. I don't know why. But, but, but some mirrors, they reveal everything. You know what I'm saying? And the law of God is such a mirror, it reveals everything about your life. Everything. Everything about your shortcomings. Everything about your sin. To, it goes so deep that it shows the very motives of your heart and it shows that we are in need of a Savior. We are in need of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the first um, role of the law, or the, uh, the first function, we could say, of the law, to reveal to us that we are sinners and to reveal to us that we are in need of a Savior, okay? But many people stop there. They say, okay, that's the role of the law. Now, we know that we're sinners. Jesus saves us. We're fine. That's the gospel. Let's, let, that, that's it. That's fine. But it is so important for us to probe a little bit deeper because the law of God actually has a second function as we're going to discover this evening. Now, uh, you're in the book of Romans. I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. So that's a couple of books ahead. You go through the book of Romans, then you come to the, fir to the first letter to the Corinthian church, then you come to the second letter to the Corinthian church, and right after 2 Corinthians, you have the book of Galatians. And go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. 
and we're going to read from verse 23. And I said this is going to be a real Bible study. So we're going to look, and especially now in the beginning of this presentation, we're going to look at a number of scriptures so that we can lay a firm foundation uh, to understand this topic of the role of the Ten Commandments, the role of the law in the life of a Christian. And I think if you really pay attention this evening, if you just you know, pray to the Lord even silently now that you'll not be distracted, that you will follow along carefully, I believe that this can be for many of you revolutionary that you will have after tonight a new understanding of the role of God's law in your life. And and that is my prayer, at least. So Galatians, take notice of Galatians chapter 3, and I'm beginning to read from verse 23. Galatians 3, verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, or we were under the law. The same expression that we read in the book of Romans. Um, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, uh, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor or no longer under the law, as some um, translations say. Now, what what is this saying? Because this text has been highly misunderstood within Christianity. What many people have said, yeah, there you have it. You see, when we have Christ, the law is no longer needed. The law leads us to Christ, but we are no longer in need of the law once we have Christ. But what is the text actually saying when we look at it a little closer? What it's telling us is that the law, again, is giving us a knowledge of sin. It is giving us a knowledge of our need for Jesus, right? We were under the law, but what, what did that do? When we were under the law, the law condemned us. We, we recognized our condition, and so we put our faith in Jesus, and Jesus' life of perfect obedience and his perfect sacrifice is now there in order for me to be forgiven. When I put my faith in him, I'm forgiven, and his life stands now in the place of my life. Now, we're going we're gonna to look a little bit closer at this, but here in Galatians chapter 3, we have a picture of what it means to be under the law. And to be under the law is really to be condemned by the law. We are condemned by the law, we realize our need, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, okay? Now, I want you to keep your finger in the book of Galatians because we're gonna come right back there in a moment, but I wanna go to another text in the book of Hebrews. So you keep your finger in the book of Galatians, And you go on in the Bible, and um, you come eventually to the book of Hebrews, and um, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and now we're going to look at the second function of the law. The first function of the law, to reveal sin, right, like a mirror. Let's look at now the second function of God's law. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. 16 and 17. And we read the following. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So here we have a promise in the book of Hebrews that God wants to take his law, he wants to take his commandments, and what does he want to do with it? He wants to write them somewhere. Where does he want to write them, according to this passage that we just read? In our hearts, right? You can think of it this way. Once God wrote the commandments on stone when he gave it to Moses, 
But here we read in the book of Hebrews that God wants to do something more than just writing the commandments on stone. He wants to write it on our hearts. Now, the second function of the law is really that it becomes an experience in our lives. Again, first function of the law, the law is like a mirror and it condemns us of our sin. It shows us that we are sinners. It shows our need of the person Jesus Christ. In that sense, it leads us to Christ, as the passage in Galatians said. But then as we embrace Christ, the person, the life of Christ comes into us. Jesus lives out his life in us and Jesus kept the law perfectly. And so Jesus coming into us is really the law coming into us. Do you get that? it's, it's, It's quite fascinating that we put our faith in Christ in his perfect obedience and that perfect life of Jesus now becomes ours. Now, we're going to examine this because um, if you now go back to the book of Galatians, we're going to look at a passage that I think will, will clarify what we're talking about. If you kept your finger in the book of Galatians, go back to the book of Galatians and turn to chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 18, Galatians 5 verse 18, and we read the following. But if you are led by the Spirit, listen to the phrase here, you are not, what does it say in your Bible? You are not under the law. Now, we've, we've, we've already come to that expression a number of times now, under the law. Every time that it says under the law, what it's really talking about is that we are not under the condemnation of the law. And so what it says here in Galatians chapter 5 is that if we are led by the Spirit, which is really being led by the life of Jesus, we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. Why not? Well, let's continue to read. Look at what it says. Um, Well, let's drop down to verse 22. Look at at what it says in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And here comes an interesting phrase against such, what does your Bible say? There is no law. Now, what, what? There is no law? Like, first we are under the law, and suddenly then there is no law. What does this mean? This means that there is no condemnation of the law any longer when the Spirit controls us. Remember, the law is in its first function like a mirror, right? It reveals our sins, right? But then as we embrace Jesus Christ and his character, and his perfect life is now reproduced in us, now, because of our faith in him, we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. The law no longer condemns us when his life is lived out in us. And so the law has really two functions. First, it is to lead us to Christ, to show us our need for him, to show us our sins. But the second function of the law is that it is to be written in our hearts and established in our lives. And so many times when we talk about the gospel, people will stop with the first function of the law. And it's so important for us to move on and to allow that law that was once a mirror, and it continues to be a mirror because as we fall every time the mirror reminds us, the law reminds us of our need for Jesus, but there must be something more. And that is that when the law becomes a part of us, when God writes it upon our hearts, and this is through the person, Jesus Christ. Now, with this in mind, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and that's about in the middle of your Bible, so if you just 
um, open your Bible kind of in the middle, you, you'll probably end up somewhere there, somewhere close to the book of Psalms, and turn to Psalms chapter 1. There's a passage here that I think will kind of, you know, have a new meaning after what we have just uh, looked at together. Psalms chapter 1, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. And this is a psalm of, um, b- believed to be of David. I-, I think it's of David. We don't ex- uh, precisely know. But listen to the experience of the psalm writer here. He says the following. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the river of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper." So here we have the description, of the, ex- or the description of the experience of a person that delights in the law of God. Now, and, and he's meditating upon it day and night. Now let me ask you something. Do you meditate upon something day and night? Do you delight in something that continually condemns you and continually tells you that you are a sinner, a very big sinner? Do you delight in that? So, so what, 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 how could this person here writing this psalm, how, how could they come to that experience of saying, I actually delight in the law of God? Because it's not very, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't really make much sense to delight in something that would continually condemn us. There is a deeper experience here with the law of God where the law of God, yes, in its first function, it shows us our need for Christ, but then there's something more because the law of God is not only a perfect mirror of um, revealing our sin, but it is also a perfect revelation of the character of God. And this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening in examining how the law of God, how the Ten Commandments are a perfect, beautiful revelation of God's character and an experience that we are to embrace and cherish. And I think that once we understand that, we can, we can say, oh, you know what? Yes, the law that once condemned, the law that I was once under, I have now embraced, and I love it, and I cherish it, and I follow it, and I meditate upon it, and I want it, and it reveals to me who God is. So let's turn to, where do we find the Ten Commandments? Anyone know? Exodus, Exodus 20. Let's turn there together. And we're just going to have a fresh look at these Ten Commandments. You know, what happens is in the first function of the law, the Ten Commandments, they condemn us as sinners. We are under the law. In the second function of the law, the Ten Commandments become Ten Promises. They become Ten Promises. And we want to look at how, at what kind of promises God is giving us through the Ten Commandments. And maybe you've always thought uh, in your Christian experience that the Ten Commandments are really like this, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, and it's just like a burden. It's nothing that you ever thought of delighting in. It's nothing you ever thought of meditating upon day and night. It's something that, you know, you thought, well, okay, it's just a list of things that I shouldn't do in order to get to heaven. Maybe, maybe that has been your experience. But let's see if tonight, with a fresh look at Ten Commandments, at the Ten Commandments, you can actually see the character of God there and the beauty of what God is trying to say to each one of us. So, Exodus chapter 20, and I'm not going to start in verse 3, which many times that's what we do. There we have the first commandment, but I want to start in verse 1, because 1 and 2, verse 1 and 2, they... um, 
in verse 1 and 2, we find a key to understand um, the rest of the Ten Commandments. So let's go to Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So before God gives them the commandments, before he even utters the first commandment, God reminds his people that he is the one that brought them out of Egypt, that delivered them out of slavery. Now, when I was a young Christian, I first started reading my Bible, and I read the Ten Commandments, and I read this passage, I thought to myself, now, of course, these Ten Commandments, I, I don't know how they're going to really be, you know, how they're really going to fit into my life, and especially when I started reading the beginning of the chapter, I thought to myself, I've never been a slave in Egypt, so obviously, you know, this, I, I don't know how this relates to me. Until later on, as I really started studying this a little bit more deeper and praying to God for a greater understanding of His commandments, the Holy Spirit convicted me and showed me that we have all been slaves. I have been a slave. You have been a slave. Now, you might not have been a slave in Egypt, but we have all been slaves of sin. And the picture of Egypt and the enslavement of God's people in Egypt is really a typology, a picture of something much greater, and that is the slavery of sin. And how are we delivered from our sins? Well, what happened to the people of Israel? What happened to the, to the Hebrews? Think about it. Uh, Moses came and he said to the Pharaoh, let my people go. Did, did Pharaoh do that? Not immediately, right? As a matter of fact, um, uh, God worked these incredible miracles in um, Egypt, and uh, the first plague was poured on Egypt. But did that result in the exodus? The first plague? No. How many plagues did it take? Ten, right? Now, something happened during the tenth plague, and you might remember this in the story. It's very interesting. They, uh, the Hebrews, were to take a lamb, and the lamb had to be without blemish. In other words, it had to be a perfect lamb, a healthy lamb. It was a picture of Jesus, okay? They were to take that lamb. They were to take it on the tenth day of what became later the first month of the, of the Hebrews. Um, and they, they were to take that lamb, and for four days they had that lamb ready, and on the 14th day of the first month they took that lamb, and they slew the lamb, they took the blood of the lamb, and does anyone remember what they did with it? They put it on the doorposts, right? And then the angel of destruction came through the land, which was the 10th plague, and every time the angel came to a house, to a home where the blood was on the doorpost, he passed over that home, and that's why we call it the Feast of Passover, he passed over the homes where the blood was on the doorpost. Now, this is a beautiful typology of the sacrifice of Jesus because the lamb represents Jesus that died for our sins, for our trespasses. And so when you fast forward the story and you come to the gospel story, Jesus, did you know that he died exactly on Passover? Did you know that, by the way, he came into the city of Jerusalem on the 10th day, he taught publicly for four days, just like they had the lamb uh, set aside for four days, and then exactly on Passover, he was crucified, and so he fulfilled the Passover. Jesus is the lamb 
that came to take away our sins. And it was because of the Passover lamb that they eventually were led out of Egypt, led out of the bondage and enslavement of sin into the wilderness where they then received these Ten Commandments. But think about it. Before the commandments are given, Jesus has already set them free. And Jesus has died for, in, in the typology here, has died for them. It's the lamb is a, is a picture of Christ. And so what, what God is saying is remember that you were slaves in Egypt, but I set you free. Before the first commandment is given, God reminds us that Jesus has died for us, that Jesus has set us free, and that when we put our faith in him, our confidence in him, that we can be set free. And then God goes on to reveal his character in these Ten Commandments. But at the very foundation of the Ten Commandments is the sacrifice of Jesus, right there in the Old Testament, a picture of what was to come, the sacrifice of Jesus. And each and every commandment that follows is only possible because of, the, because of the sacrifice of Jesus. It is because of what Jesus has done that I will have no more gods uh, than, than one God, the, my Father, my Heavenly Father. It is because of the sacrifice of Jesus that I will not bow down to graven images. It is because of the sacrifice of Jesus, and I can go on and on and on, all ten commandments. That is the foundation. Now, let's look at the first commandment then. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And, you know, in the first function of the law, where the law condemns, where the law reveals our sin, yes, it's like, oh, I have many other gods. I have many other things that I'm interested in uh, more than I'm interested in God. And, and, you know, we talked about it the first night. Uh, we talked about how it is so easy to worship the created rather than the creator. And we take the gifts of God and we pursue those and we leave out God. And so this really becomes, these gifts become little gods for us. And so, yes, the law condemns us of those actions, but, and it leads us back to Christ. But then, as we look at the second function of the law, as we look at it as a promise, this is so beautiful, think about it. God is basically saying here, you don't need anything else. I will be everything for you. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You don't need any other gods. I'll be enough. I will be everything for you. I will be better than what you could ever imagine. I will surpass all your expectations. I will fulfill your deepest desires. I will show you the true purpose of life. I will fill your greatest needs. I will quench your deepest thirst. I will satisfy your deepest longing. I will be there for you. It's a promise. Now, is that something you can delight in? Oh, I want to meditate upon that day and night. I don't know about you, but, but when God says to me, you don't need any other gods, I will be everything for you. When I, when I understand that commandment as a promise, my friends, I, I want to embrace that. I, I see it as a revelation of who God is. Amen? It's no longer something that condemns me because it's something that I want. It's something that I want to pursue with all the energy that I have. Now, let's see if the other commandments reveal the same thing. The next commandment, we're not going to read it all for time's sake, but the second commandment is you shall not have any, you shall not bow down or make yourself a carved image or bow down to it. Now, it's interesting. The word image, where, do you, where does that first appear in Scripture? Does anyone know where the word image first appears? In creation, exactly. Now, God created everything in a succession of six days, but in all of that which he was created, there was only one object of creation where he said, 
let us make, and who was that in his image? Man in his image. He didn't say, let us make a tree in our image, or let us make a planet in our image, or let us make a star in our image, or let us make this fish in our image. The only object of creation that was made in the image of God was mankind, right? Male and female. You and I are made in the image of God. Now, that image has been marred by sin, and yet, what God wants to do, and this is really, again, such a precious promise, because God wants to reveal himself to us so that by beholding him, we can be changed again into that original image. And uh, this is a text, and you don't have to turn there for time's sake, but I'm just going to read it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, it says the following. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, there's this rule in Scripture, and it's really something that we just also know from, from experiences in life, that by beholding, we become changed, right? By that which we behold, that has an impact upon our lives. Now, uh, we, when we behold God and the character of God, we are changed into his image. In other words, his character is represented in us, not because of any power or strength that we have in ourselves, but because of the work of the Spirit through the life of Jesus. Now, how is this second commandment then really a precious promise? God is saying, you don't have to wonder what I'm like. I'm going to actually reveal what I'm like. And you know, isn't that something? Many people in this world wonder, like, what is God like? What is God exactly like? God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself in the Scriptures. We don't have to go around and, and wonder what God is like. Every single page of this book reveals something about the character of God. And God's, God is saying to us, you don't, have to, you don't have to carve out an image. You don't have to wonder what I'm like. Because what happened, well, in ancient times, they actually carved out images that they said, this represents God. Now, we might not do that. We say, well, we're too sophisticated for that. We don't actually make this image of God, but we do it in many other ways. Maybe we don't make metal images, but we have mental images. In our minds, we create pictures of God that are maybe not according to Scripture. But God in the second commandment is really saying, you don't need to do that. You don't have to carve out an image. You don't have to bow down to that. I will reveal myself to you. I will make you know what I am like. And when we study the scriptures, we can know the character of God. It's a promise that you can embrace. Look at the third commandment. Um, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And this doesn't have to do with just the way that we pronounce the name of God, though that is implied in the commandment, but it goes a little bit deeper here. When you study the name of God, it's interesting that the name of God is connected with, again, the character of God. At one instance, Moses, he asks God and he says, show me your glory. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 33. He says, show me your glory, God. And God says to Moses, I will, I, I will proclaim my name to you. And then in the very next chapter, Exodus 34, God calls Moses up on the mountain, and you may remember this story. He puts him in the cleft of the rock, and God passes by before him. He holds his hand before Moses because if Moses would see the full glory of God, he would be evaporated. He would die instantly. And so God passes by, and you know what God does? He proclaims his name. He proclaims his character. 
And so the name of God is really the character of God. That's why you read in the book of Revelation that the 144,000, maybe you've heard of that group before, those are the, the, the ones that are living when Jesus returns. They have the name of God written on their foreheads, the character of God engraved in their minds, in their hearts. And so what we see in the, in the third commandment is a promise again that God is going to reveal his character. He's going to reveal his name. And we come to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. And um, the Sabbath commandment is a fascinating one. And again, we see here a beautiful progression as well. God says, you don't have to have any other gods before me. Uh, you don't need any other gods. I will be everything to you. I'm going to reveal myself to you, second commandment. I'm going to reveal my character to you, third commandment. And then in the fourth commandment, God does something amazing. He shows us a pattern of life, a pattern of life. Remember that God created the world in how many days? Six days. And what did he do on the seventh day? He rested and he sanctified that day. And to sanctify means to set aside for special use. So God takes the seventh day and he sets it aside. And then he invites us to do the same. He invites us to, yes, we can work and we can envision and we can build and we can exercise and we can do everything we want for six days. And then the seventh day is a special day for God. It's set aside for special use. Now, I want you to take notice of this. Uh, we're not going to read the whole commandment just for time's sake here. I believe you're familiar with it. But um, when you look back at creation, at the creation story, and where we first read about the Sabbath, God decides to sanctify time. And, and, and the next kind of, uh, what, what I want to do in the next minute or so, I really need you to think very, very carefully. So I hope you're, you're sharp, your minds are sharpened and ready so that you can pick up on what I'm trying to share here. So the first thing that God sanctifies is what, everyone? Time. Okay, let's try that again. What is the first thing God sanctifies? Time, Time exactly. Now, could God, have could God have sanctified something else? Yeah. He could have said, you know, um, this is a real uh, beautiful flower. This is going to be, you know, over a bush or a tree. This is going to be sanctified. This is going to be holy. You know, or he could have said, you know, um, this certain place in the Garden of Eden, this is going to be sanctified. This is going to be holy place. Okay? He could have sanctified an object. He could have sanctified a place. Could have done that. Why did God sanctify time? And what does that say about the character of God? Now, listen very carefully. In many religions today, many religions today, either a place is holy or an object is holy, which means that in order for you to experience the presence of God or the presence of this supreme being, you must go to that place or you must have that object. But God is saying, you know, God is saying something very, very significant here. God is saying, you don't need to go to a place. You don't need to go to an object. I'll come to you. Time comes to you. No matter where you are in the world, you experience the seventh day. If you are locked in a dungeon because of your faith, no one can take from you the seventh day. It always comes. God comes. God takes the initiative. God says, I'm a God that comes to you. I will take the first step. Remember in the fall when, when Adam and Eve ran from the presence of God, what did God do? He came and he said, where are you? He followed them. He sought them out. That is the God that we serve. And God in sanctifying time shows that he takes the initiative to come to us. Wherever you are on this planet, you can experience the seventh day. It always comes. It's always coming. It's coming right now. Just a couple more days, it's coming. God takes the initiative to seek us out. Amen? 
Now, let's, let's look at the next commandment. There's more that we could say about that, but time is slipping away here. Uh, let's look at um, verse 12, which we come now to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Can I hear a big amen? Amen. I'm sure you have wonderful parents. Amen? Amen. And you want to honor them. Amen. Amen. This is a commandment with a promise, by the way, that we directly find here in the very passage itself, that your days may be long. Now, uh, again, I want to show you this beautiful progression here. Commandment number one, God says, I will be everything for you. You don't need to have any other gods. I will be everything for you. Commandment number two, I will reveal myself to you. You don't need to make an image. I will show you who I am. Commandment number three, I will show you my name, my character. Commandment number four, I will come to you right? Commandment number five, this impl- the implication of this picture of God that we've received so far in these first four commandments is now applied in the personal life. And so where does it start? Where does the Christian experience start? It starts in the home. What a beautiful promise that Christian, to be a, you don't have to be a missionary in going to Africa or going to Asia. You can be a Christian in your home. Amen? This is where it all starts. And the commandments reveal this beautiful progression of when we understand this about God and when we embrace this about God, it will have an effect in the home life, the fifth commandment. Now look at the sixth commandment, and we're going we're to take commandments six, seven, and eight together here, um, verse 13, 14, and 15. These are very short ones. Um, commandment number six, you shall not murder. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Now, it's interesting, again, catch the significance here of the progression. The character of God is revealed in the first four commandments. This applies itself in the home life when we embrace the character of God in our, in our lives. And now, as you look at the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandment, that really has to do now also with society as well, right? Not only, and home life, and society. So this, this, this experience of um, the, the, the character of God, the law of God being written in our hearts is an experience that will be seen in the home and it will be seen in society. It will be seen by those that we encounter day by day. Now, yesterday, we looked at Matthew chapter 5, and so we're not going to go there, but you might remember how Jesus basically enlarged these commandments, uh, particularly the one, um, thou shalt not murder, and uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Remember that, you know, those are kind of the commandments that we sometimes think, well, those I can check off. If I'm doing well on any commandments, I have never murdered a person and I'm not married, so I can't really commit adultery. So I'm doing fine on those. But what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter five? He said, wait, 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 wait. Before you think that you're doing fine on those, Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, you have already committed what? Murder right? And if you lust after that woman, that is, you've already committed adultery. So Jesus expands the law in its first function to condemn us, to show us our need of a Savior, our need of of Jesus, right? But then as we embrace Christ and we move into the second function of the law where it becomes a promise for us, look at what the promise now is. The promise is that God is not going to work only on your outer behavioral patterns, but God is actually going to change your heart, where everything springs forth, where all starts. Think about it. Um, murder starts in the heart, in the mind. Stealing, before you take that object, you have already thought about it, that you want that thing. Right? Uh, adultery, that doesn't just happen at once. First, you have lusted, right? So, 
God gives us the promise that he's going to deal with sin, not in the outer action only, but he's going to change our heart and our mind. And this, my friends, is a promise. It's a promise. As a matter of fact, um, well, we won't, do, we won't go there now. I had a passage in mind that we could have gone to, but it will come in the next um, commandment, and we'll try to bring this in. But I hope that you're seeing here um, the picture of what God wants to do in our lives. It's a promise. God is saying, you don't have to murder because of my power. And even, let's go beyond that, you don't have to be angry with your brother. You don't have to steal that object, but let's go even further. I, I, I can even empower you that you even don't want to steal it in your mind. Right? And, and you don't have to commit adultery, but let's go even further. God says, I, I will promise you that if you cling to me, that I can even take away those thoughts that you had when you lusted after that person. Now, the thought of itself of, of lusting after that person is not sin. That's temptation. We need to also understand the difference between sin and temptation. We're all tempted. But when we surrender ourselves to God and allow him to take possession of our mind, what will he do? He will allow us to conquer that temptation. Amen? All right, now let's look at the next commandment here. Uh, let's go to verse 16, commandment number nine. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, you shall not lie. Now, the opposite of bearing false witness would be to bear a true witness. And basically, these promises that God is giving is resulting in us giving a true witness. I want you to turn in your Bibles to a passage in the book of Luke, Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, and verse 43, and uh, we'll come back to, to um, Exodus 20, but look at Luke chapter 6, verse 43 to 45. What is the promise that God is giving us here? He says, thou shalt not bear false witness. God is giving us a promise that he can allow us to be a true witness, and how does that happen? Well, in Luke chapter 6, Verse 43 to 45, it says, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good, and an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. And now here comes the catch here, the last part of, the, part of this verse. For out of the abundance of the heart, what does your Bible say? His mouth speaks. So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, do you again see the progression? What does God want to do? He wants to change our heart, right? And as he changes our heart, then what's going to come forth? It's going to come forth a true witness. And so the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, God is giving a promise and saying you don't need to bear false witness because when I change your heart out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. Amen? And now we come to the last commandment, and this really wraps it all together in a beautiful way. Look at commandment number 10, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, and the very last commandment here, verse 17. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, you shall not covet. Now, what does it mean to covet? To covet is to want something else that is not yours. You know, you, you, you want something more that you don't have. My friends, this is again a beautiful promise because what God is saying here is that when he becomes everything to us, when he changes our hearts, when he changes our lives, we will not want anything else. 
And it's almost like the Ten Commandments are framed by the First Commandment and the Tenth. The First Commandment, God says, you don't, don't have any other gods before me. I promise you, I'll be everything for you. And then you come all through the sequence of these commandments, a beautiful progression of the Christian experience, the beautiful progression of, of the character of God. And then you come to the Tenth, and God says, don't covet. You do not need to covet anything else. By the way, if you experience this, you won't covet you won't covet. My friends, you will come to the experience, if you embrace the gospel, the unhindered gospel, you will come to the point in your life where you will basically say, I don't want anything else but God. God is better. God is so much better. Better than that video game, better than that movie, better than that boyfriend, better than that girlfriend, better than the best food you could ever imagine, better than anything, better than that prestige career that you think is so important for you, better than the best. God will be everything. And you'll just say, God, I want you more than anything else. I want your will to be done in my life. You have revealed yourself in a marvelous way, in a beautiful way, and I cannot imagine a life without you. I don't want the broken cistern that holds no water. I want you, the living water that stills my thirst, and I don't want to go back to the well of emptiness again. I want you and nothing else but you. Nothing else but you. Because Jesus has died. He's given his life for you and for me. What else could he have given? What more could he have done? What, what, what more do you want God to do than he has already done? In giving his son, he's given everything. He emptied heaven for you and for me. Amen? And we can embrace that. We can take hold of that. We can live in that. This is the promise. And we find this revealed in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a revelation of the character of God. And my friends, when we understand this as ten promises, oh, I delight in this. Oh, I want to pursue this. Oh, I want to meditate upon this. Yes, at times when, yes, when I fall, and yes, I do fall, and yes, I do come short, and then the law again reminds me suddenly that I'm under it, that I need to go back to my Savior, that I am a sinner. But I want also that experience of, of, of the law being written in my heart where I see the character of God and I understand what, what He's like and what He wants to do in my life. And how many of you want that experience tonight? How many of you say, I want that experience? Amen. Amen. Very shortly before we close here, the Ten Commandments can even be experienced in the progression that, I just, that we just studied through tonight, to, to, together, or they can be experienced in the absolute opposite direction. And we're going to close with this, but you know, um, the great, great enemy of God, Lucifer, that when, when the whole great controversy broke out in heaven, do you know that he broke every single commandment all 10 of them, he broke in succession, but not from 1 to 10, but from 10 to 1. Basically went in the opposite direction. You know, what was the first commandment that Lucifer broke? He coveted the position of God. He said, I want to be like the Most High. He wanted something that he did not have. He broke the 10th commandment. And that led him to break the ninth commandment because what did he do? He started spreading lies about the character of God. He started bearing a false witness, right? What did he do after that? Well, he sought to steal the position of God, commandment number eight, right? Then he breaks his relationship with God, which in many ways is like a spiritual divorce, commandment number seven. Then he sought even to murder Michael, Jesus Christ. And remember, you, you, you read about that great big war that, that broke out in heaven. And so he sought even to murder God, to take his life, commandment number six. 
Then, when he was cast out of heaven, his rage continued against the family of God that were made in the image of God. He broke commandment number five. He made an attack on the family of God. Then he attacks the holy time of God, the Sabbath. He attacks the very character of God and name of God by misrepresenting him, commandment number three. He creates a new image of God, commandment number two. And ultimately, he makes himself God, commandment number one. But this is powerful. Now, you've got to get this before we close. There is one step that he inevitably has to take. Because we came out of the slavery of Egypt, and we make a progression this way. But Lucifer is making a progression this way. So where does he end up? Where does he end up? Enslaved. And the question for you and for me is, which way are you heading? Are you following Jesus or are you following Lucifer? And I believe that each one of us here tonight wants to follow Christ. I must believe that. I do believe that. And I know that God wants to do something in your life. But allow him, allow him space in your life. Give him your all. Now is the time to do that. Don't delay. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next, me next week or next month. Give your heart to him. And what a beautiful time to give your heart to him at a week of prayer like this. And maybe you know even right now that, that, that God has not, has not gotten all of you. There are things that you have kept back. Maybe there's someone here tonight that just wants to say, I want to give him all because he's worth it. He's so much better. Anyone want to say that? He's so much better. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Why don't we kneel as we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the power of your scripture, the revelation that you have given of yourself. And Lord, we just want to say together, you are better, so much better than what we could ever have imagined. And Lord, there are things in our life where we, that we cling on to so many times, but we realize tonight, Lord, they're just broken cisterns. They can't hold any water. Only you can give us the living water that will quench our thirst. Oh Lord, help us to belong to you. Help us to embrace you. May you become everything for us. I pray for every single student here, every staff member, all of us together, Lord. May we experience the unhindered gospel. And I praise you that you that have started a work in us will also complete it. For we trust and believe that and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say... Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.